Most of us engage in some level of negative self-talk. This can influence our physical health, our mental health, and certainly our relationships. Self-talk is something that is created in us and by us, but it's also created by the world around us, including the networks where we choose to live and to be. So in today's episode, we're gonna be examining the three Ps, our past, our programming, and our personality, and the role that these three things play in what we tell ourselves about ourselves. We'll conclude each section with some positive steps to analyze and improve our self-talk and we can, so we can be of maximum value to ourselves and to the world. Hi, my name is Will Sampson, and I am a social scientist who helps guide executives and companies to new levels of growth. If you want to improve your life all by yourself, that's your business. But if you want help from others, that's our business, and that's what this podcast is all about, helping each other succeed. We do that by inviting people into a growing revolution of interdependence. I have a friend who describes herself as an athlete. And when I first encountered this person, I thought it was interesting that they would describe themselves that way. I mean, they're in corporate America. They're not someone whose primary identity is playing a sport. Now, over time, I learned that they run triathlons and, frankly, run them quite competitively. I observed that there was a qualitative, probably a quantitative too, but there was a qualitative difference in the way this person approached exercise. They seem to have the capacity to push themselves a little harder. They seem to have the ability to drive past limits that we often place on ourselves. And then just this past week, there was an article in the Washington Post about how you describe yourself. It asked the question, do you describe yourself as an athlete or do you describe yourself as an exerciser? And just like the case of my friend, what this article noted was that the people who describe themselves as athletes, even if they're not in the WNBA or playing professional women's soccer or professional volleyball or baseball or football, even if they're not paid to be athletic, those people, this research found, the people who describe themselves as athletes, they tend to exercise harder and they push themselves further. They take those extra steps simply because of the language they use to describe themselves to themselves and to others. And so that seemed a good way to introduce the subject we're covering today, which is the concept of self-talk. When we talk to ourselves, what words do we use? How do we describe ourselves to ourselves? What language and tone of voice do we use when we are criticizing ourselves, when we're congratulating ourselves? Now, that's also an interesting topic because this episode is a week late. And that story also relates to my self-talk. So I wanted to share that with you as well, because if nothing else, I want this podcast to be a demonstration of vulnerability and authenticity. I don't want to present ideas to you without sharing my struggle in those areas. So here's the deal. Six weeks ago, I had shoulder surgery. And if you've had that surgery, you know the insomnia that comes with it. For the last several weeks, I've really struggled with sleep, sometimes getting no more than two or three hours a night. Now, struggling with sleep 
means struggling with cognition and the things that require a healthy, rested brain to be able to do things like, oh, I don't know, write an episode of a podcast. So this episode is a week late, and I'll confess the irony to you now, which is that when I spent a week not writing an episode of how we talk to ourselves, I spent some time that week saying some really terrible things to myself, like, you're lazy, you miss deadlines all the time, and so on. Just It's just the junk that we pull off the list of our character defects when we need to beat ourselves up. Now, that's ironic, isn't it? Fortunately, I was able to practice some principles and knowledge I've gained, principles to allow me to get back on track and get this podcast out, even if it's a week late. Now, it was a good reminder for me of the absolute importance of how we talk to ourselves. But it was also a good reminder of the power of the group and the power of interdependence to help us rephrase the language we use on ourselves. Now, if you know this podcast, you'll know that I'm a person in long-term recovery, and some of the tools that I use in getting out of my funk and rebuilding a positive conversation with myself is going to meetings, sharing, discussing with others, calling people, and so on. All those things are done with the goal of getting the negativity out of my head and borrowing some positive self-talk from others until I could create that positive self-talk for myself again. And I keep learning from experiences that while self-talk is a conversation I have with myself, it's also socially constructed. See, the conversation I was having with myself was about expectations I had created. It was about unmet objectives in the past. But I had also convinced myself that people were expecting this episode. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm great, great, grateful for all of you loyal listeners. But I'm also self-aware enough to realize that this podcast does not have a large audience yet, and that's okay. I also carried around ideas about what it means to be a podcaster in this day and age. Right? We think of the successful people who've built brands for themselves around podcasting. Now, all I want to do is to share what I think are some important ideas that aren't often discussed. And yet, even within my own spirit, I was having this conversation with cultural expectations about a, what a podcast would mean for me and for this world. All of those ideas are just social constructs, but they're often based on true events, things that have happened to me. So think about it this way. Here's a story to illustrate it. My family moved when I was 13 years old. And 13 is it's just a really critical age. Now, the house we moved from is the, is the one where I had grown up. It was the only house I had ever known until that time. And for many years in my memory, <laughs> that house was giant. Now, years later, I drove my family by that house, and it just wasn't that big. I mean, it was the size of what we would consider an average home today, and yet for years, I had remembered this house as a, I don't know, palatial estate. Now, don't get me wrong, it was, it was really nice, but certainly not the way I had remembered it. And that's how memory works. Memory is a collection of signs, metaphors, meaning, 
And self-talk, it's the same thing. When what we realize is that the way we talk to ourselves is affected by three things. And I call these things the three P's. Our past, our programming, and our personality. And we're going to explore each of these ideas and the way in which they impact the words, the tone, and the meaning we use when we talk to ourselves. So modern science is shedding increasing light on ideas that sometimes feel out of our grasp. That ideas that many in the rational West dismiss as, I don't know, woo-woo, <laughs> new agey, whatever, spiritual but not scientific. And the way I like to describe it is that over time, research is giving witness to the woo-woo. Ideas that science once dismissed, concepts like rewiring the brain through linguistic programming, are becoming well accepted by the scientific and the medical community. Now, do not mishear me. <laughs> There's some really terrible junk out on the internet about linguistic programming, for example. But we also have these seminal studies on neuroplasticity. There's the work of Norman Doidge at the University of Toronto and Columbia University that show how language, words, and belief rewire the brain. And as the science around these ideas grow, we see increasing acceptance of certain practices in the market. So 44% of the Fortune 100 offer meditation training to their employees. Mindfulness, yoga, those are now staple offerings in corporate America. And the reason why I offer these thoughts is that I feel like sometimes we need permission, even from ourselves, to explore these deeper questions and to explore what often doesn't feel specifically rational. And that was certainly true for me. In my upbringing, I was taught, frankly, that only mentally ill people talk to themselves. But here's what we know now, and that everyone <laughs> talks to themselves. And the extent to which we can monitor and change that self-talk, that determines whether we live with a greater sense of integration between our mind, our spirit, and even our body. Because it turns out that so much of our healthy living patterns are deeply correlated with the things we tell ourselves about food, physical health, growth, and a growth mindset. I noticed this in my coaching. I've been doing a lot of work lately on the idea of the second half of life. Now, that's a concept that was popularized by Carl Jung, and the spiritual teacher, Father Richard Rohr, has a really great book on the topic called Falling Upward. And uh, Arthur Brooks, Bruce Feiler, those are both popular authors who've been exploring this idea in books that were released recently. So why is this idea of the two halves of life suddenly so popular? Well, while it's true that there's a growing and really existentially threatening level of inequality in our world, it's also true that for those with a certain level of social capital, they are realizing that we, we can live a lot longer than we thought, frankly, especially if we marshal our self-talk we increasingly realize that our lives could be longer, lived with greater experience, 
and that one of the factors influencing this is the way we talk to ourselves. So let's talk about the three factors that influence our self-talk. And we're going to begin by looking at the past. So in Bruce Perry's book, it's the one that he wrote along with Oprah Winfrey called What Happened to You. Uh, Perry describes from a neuroscientific perspective the way in which past trauma really kind of gets down to the innermost parts of our brain and it affects the way we act in the world. It affects the way we process information and it most certainly affects the way we talk to ourselves. But it's not just our trauma that does that. Really, all of our past comes together to form a web of meaning and memory. The places we've been, the people we've met, the sum of all of our experience, together, those things are, 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 are they represent our past. And all of those factors shape the language we use in the world. It, they, they shape the way we talk to ourselves. So how does the past shape the way we talk to ourselves? Well, first, it shapes our beliefs. Our past experience has an impact on the beliefs that we form. It has an impact on the beliefs that we hold. Maybe we had negative experiences in certain subjects in school. Let's say it was math. That was certainly true for me when I was younger. And so now we tell ourselves that we're not good at math or we don't have an engineering mind or we're just not technical. The negative experience could also be true in a more creative direction. Maybe it was in that third grade art class and there was some snotty kid next to us who said the picture we drew of our mom looked gross. I don't know. And so now we've been carrying around this belief in our mind for our whole adult life that we're bad at art or we're not creative. Just because some goofy kid didn't like our artwork in third grade. I remember when I was 13 years old, I was, I was in the shower. And you know, it's, I was typical 13-year-old, oily teenager, ugh. Now, I guess my dad thought that, thought that I was taking too long because he you know, banged on the shower wall and he said, you're ruining us. Now, <laughs> he, was, he was obviously being a bit hyperbolic, and I'm pretty sure that one shower wasn't the undoing of my family's economic state. But for a really long time, well into adulthood, I carried around this idea that Oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a guy who takes really long showers. <laughs> now, I remember one day I said something like that to my wife, and she, she burst out laughing. She said that I take the shortest showers of anyone she's ever known. So I'd been having this conversation with myself about who I was and these really long showers that I took. But it wasn't true. It was just a self-sabotaging story conditioned by a trauma in my past. Now, it's also true that our past influences the way we interpret new data. Maybe we tried some particular ethnic food that we didn't like or it didn't agree with us. And so now we have this conversation with ourselves that says, I'm not an adventurous eater. 
maybe that's true. And I don't know, maybe there's a reason for it. Some people are prone to conditions like acid reflux. And so maybe that limits their ability to eat adventurously. But as we're looking to grow in positive ways in our self-talk, we want to inhabit what's often called the beginner's mind, as if we're seeing things or trying things or experiencing for the first time. And because the past influences the way we interpret new data, we need to change the conversation in our mind about new data and about new experiences. It's also true that our past determines what we remember. And what we remember has a direct impact on our self-talk. You know, we've, we've mentioned this concept before, but one of the ways we could understand post-traumatic stress disorder is when our left brain and our right brain simply can't agree on what happened. Often if we've experienced trauma, the right brain may remember the the visual and the sensory details of that trauma, but the left brain just can't make sense of what happened. And so when we seek to use our memory to shape our self-talk, we need to understand that memories, yes, are constructed by actual events, but those may not be the same as the way we remember what happened. And so when we talk to ourselves about certain events, when we shape our self-talk around what happened in those events, we should be open to asking ourselves, did that really happen? Is that what actually occurred? Now, the fourth item to discuss related to the past is the way in which our past shapes what we value and what we think is important. If we have, for example, come out of early experiences with economic trauma, maybe scarcity, maybe hunger, homelessness, things like that, then we may be more likely to value and maybe even overvalue financial security. And so as we're talking to ourselves, maybe we see a job opportunity. Maybe it's a place to move to a new city, for example. And we may see those things and say, oh yeah, well they look great, but I need to be sure I'm safe and secure financially. And so you see what's happening there? We're having this conversation with ourselves about what we want, how we want our life to be shaped, what opportunities we want to create for our growth. But we need to realize that our past and our past experience help determine for us what we even remember and what we even value. And then fifth, and kind of related to that, Last point, our past shapes what we think needs to be changed in the world. And frankly, what we think needs to be changed in ourselves. So our experience may involve some just really broken, just messed up junk that we inherited from our family of origin. And so we may tell ourselves that certain things aren't possible because in our experience, with that family of origin, those things didn't happen. And this is true on a grand scale as well. You know, when you look over the political survey data, what you see again and again is that one of the reasons people don't get involved with social change and political change is because they don't believe it's possible. Much of that belief may be shaped by 
previous experience or, or a lack of a positive experience with making change happen. But all these factors come together in shaping what we think needs to be changed in the world and what we think needs to be changed in ourselves. And as we're talking to ourselves, our voice of experience may say, oh man, like I tried that before. It just doesn't work. And I, I see this a lot with coaching clients who have tried personal growth programs to help them move beyond certain limitations or to reach new goals. And past failures in those areas make it difficult to tell themselves they believe that this time is going to be different. This time they're going to change. Now, our sixth factor that shapes our self-talk, and this is around the idea of our past, and this is really getting back to the main point of this podcast, is that our past influences the way we feel about interdependence and how we feel about relying on other people. See, our past has a direct impact on whether we believe interdependence will even work. If our experience is that we were let down by others, then relying on others now just seems foolish and maybe even reckless. So finding the self-talk that will allow us to live interdependently in the world, it's going to take bravery and courage for sure, but it will also involve finding new ways to talk to ourselves about the value of relying on others. So I'm going to give you a writing prompt for each one of the three sections this week. And here's your first prompt. How do my past experiences affect my self-talk? Are there moments of trauma that shape my belief in interdependence? Are there experiences, either positively or negatively, that shape what I value and what I think is worth focusing on? So moving on from our past, it's also true that our programming plays a really heavy role in our self-talk because it does influence our beliefs. The reality is that we're made up of these inputs, the way we make sense of the world, the language we use with ourselves and with others. This is all constructed by past events. And we've talked about that already, but it's also constructed by our programming but what we, by what we have gotten from the culture scape. You know, we hear thousands of messages every day telling us to think a certain way, multiple ways. One of the great revelations of the last several years related to Facebook and some of the other social media companies is the way they quite purposely programmed us to believe certain things and behave in certain ways. If you haven't seen the movie The Social Dilemma, you need to watch it. It really is a must-watch in the effort to grow beyond our programming. Because even if we're not captive to social media, just realizing the power of outside programming to shape the talk inside our brain will be transformative. But our programming shapes what we believe. It shapes our worldview. Now, that's a kind of an old-school word, worldview. But I think it's worth reviving. It describes how we see the world, and this can be good, this can be bad. 
recognizing our programming and the way in which it shapes our view of the world and our self-talk, that can bring a certain amount of liberation and freedom from bondage. It can break us out of the matrix that we're trapped in. It can free us up to see new perspectives. Our programming and the self-talk that comes along with it is usually a product of what someone else wanted us to believe. Now, I try to stay away from politics on this podcast, and hopefully this next story doesn't veer too deeply into it. But I want to use this story to influence or to describe maybe the way program can often be deceitful and is almost always in the service of someone else's agenda. Now, there's a particularly popular right-wing talking head, and two years ago, this person and their network were sued for libel and for false information. And (laughs) the, the lawyers for this person stood up in a U.S. court, a court of United States law, and they said that this talking head can't be guilty of libel because the things they said were so outlandish that no one would actually believe them. No one would believe they were reporting the actual news that no one would believe they were a true chronicler of true events. So millions of people are consuming quote-unquote news every day, believing they're consuming facts, but they're not getting facts. The lawyer for this talking head stood up in the court of law and said that this show was really satire posing as truth. But our, our brains don't discern the, importance, the important differences unless our self-talk tells us to be discerning. And that's how programming works. Yes, we have filters. We have filters that allow us to scream out to screen out the most obvious extreme data. But the reality is that we get caught up in these bubbles. And this is true across the political spectrum. It's true across the spectrum of belief about religion and spirituality. See, we get caught up in these bubbles and we're shaped by the programming that we choose to take in and we choose to believe. So we should be mindful of the power to purposely change our programming and to be involved with others in ways that will shape our belief and our self-talk in positive ways and in the ways that we want to go. And then second, it's also true that our programming interprets the way we see new data. Our programming interprets what we do with new information. You know, as humans, we're always trying to deal with difficult and complex problems. As I'm putting this podcast together, we're in the midst of a global crisis. It's a global tragedy. A sovereign nation, Ukraine, is being invaded by another nation. How do we see that? How do we interpret that? Well, it turns out that our programming shapes how we interpret this new data as a global event and in our own head. But our programming can also interpret the data we keep around and whether that data is true and has value for us. One of the things people in recovery learn is that To stay in recovery successfully, we just don't have the luxury of lying to ourselves. 
And it's often true that our programming allows us to lie to ourselves, and so we need to question that programming. So I grew up in a somewhat affluent neighborhood. I had a neighbor whose father worked on Madison Avenue. In the truest sense of the word, he was a madman. He was Don Draper. And he would come home at night and his wife would be dressed very elegantly and and then she would serve him this brown liquid in a beautiful cut crystal glass. And so very early on, I began to program my mind to think, yeah, you know, that's, that's what successful people look like. That's what successful people do. So for me, time in sobriety has meant reprogramming that view so that now when I see what to some looks like elegance, I can say, well, great, that may be elegant for them, and maybe that works for them, and that's great, but that isn't true for me. And then third, related to that point, programming does determine what we remember. So <laughs> one Christmas, I got this pair of walkie-talkies, and I, I, was, I, I don't know, I was probably 10 or 11 years old. And if I'm not careful, I remember those walkie-talkies as like super cool. Uh, the reason why I remember them that way is because there was this ad for them in Boys Life magazine. Boys Life magazine was the, was the publication that all scouts received. Now, if I'm not thoughtful, if I'm not careful, I remember that ad. I remember the feeling of opening the present. But not what happened next. See, see I got those walkie-talkies but they weren't actually very well built, and I certainly wasn't careful about the way I charged them. This was, they didn't have batteries, they had a wall charger. And I think I overcharged them because they died the next day. See, so programming has the capacity to bring us into the feeling the programmer wanted us to have momentarily. So I can recapture that ad. I can recapture the feeling of open, opening the present. But is that reality? See, as I learn to program my self-talk, I need to ask myself a really important question. Am I telling myself the truth? So our programming shapes our belief. It shapes even the way we remember things. It also shapes what we value. This should be obvious, right? But we live in an economy that is that increasingly um, infuses value with purchase decisions. Now, I'm sure that's always been true. <laughs> if you go back to the 19th century on Main Street, you know, Mr. Smith wanted you to believe that he had better horseshoes than Mr. Jones, right? It's always kind of been true. But today, in 2022, we are swimming in the deep waters of an attention economy and the programming that's in our culture scape is really trying to shape the things we value because they want to monetize our attention and they want more and more of our attention for greater monetization. They want to make money off our eyeballs. So as we're talking to ourselves about what we value, it's important for us to ask ourselves, why do I value the things I do? Do I value them because they're 
deeply related to my sense of purpose? Do I share those values? Do I value those things because they relate to how I'm supposed to show up in the world and what I'm supposed to contribute to the world? Or, just as likely, maybe more likely, do I value them because some AI algorithm thought I would see it and to me it would be a shiny object? <laughs> and now, my monkey brain just can't stop thinking about that thing, whatever that thing is. And so as I'm talking to myself and trying to use values to decide how I'm going to behave in the world, how I'm going to show up, how I'm going to interact with others. It's important to question the programming I've received that literally shapes the things I value. Now, fifth, our programming shapes what we think needs to be changed in the world and what we think needs to be changed in ourselves. So I was just talking to somebody this morning about those um, P90X ads. I'm not sure whether they're still on because uh, I don't have a broadcast television. But what those ads seem to say was that you you really need to change, frankly, dude. You need to be built like a bodybuilder. And guess what? You can accomplish this in 90 days. Right? Getting change for ourselves and getting that change quickly, it's a key theme in our culture. So you convince people that you have a product that will do that, and that product will achieve infomercial stardom, <laughs> infomercial success. Turn on the television, especially the sort of low-cable low uh, channels, between midnight and 6, and 6 a.m., and you're going to find solutions to get rich quick, to lose weight without work, to find a significant other, and so on. See, we like that story. We like the story that we can get for ourselves something with minimal effort. But when we think about what needs to be changed in ourselves and in the world, well, look, that, that kind of programming can make us numb. It can make us numb to the deep and existential crises in our world. We got, we got issues, folks. Every year, the World Health Organization says that globally, we are becoming more depressed. Here in early 2022, we're still in the middle of what's being called the Great Resignation. People are fleeing the workforce because of the terrible jobs and work culture that's being offered. Now, these problems are bigger than any individual, and there's no quick path to the solution. And speaking of us as individuals, it's really important to ask ourselves, what are the ways that cultural programming is numbing us, is obscuring the real ways that we need to change ourselves? And do we trust our own voice to, answer, to ask that question? And because we're focusing on interdependence, do we have people in our life and in our world who are able to help us understand where we need to grow, where we need to change? See, when you, when you look at models for change, let's take, for example, the stages of contemplation model, which is one I work with a lot. Before contemplation is unawareness, is nothing. You know, it's often true that our programming 
It blocks our awareness from changes that we need to make because the changes we need to make, frankly, they don't benefit some company or person who wants to sell us something. Take food as an example. I'm on a constant journey to eat healthier. And there are some people in companies who are interested in, in that goal. For me, they want to provide ideas and programming to, sh to uh, help shape me in that way. But in reality, there's a far larger group of people and companies that want to program me to believe that the solution they offer is the right and only solution. So when we think about our self-talk, it's important to ask what role programming is playing in deciding for me what needs to be changed in myself and in the world and how I'm relying on my own voice and the voice of my network of interdependence to answer those questions. And then finally, programming, especially the programming coming from the culture scape, so just the culture or the world out there, it influences how we feel about relying on others. It influences our view on interdependence. We may know, for example, that, um, that we need to make our communities more sustainable. Are we willing to rely on other people to achieve that goal? Or has our programming convinced us that we're in this alone, man? You know, if you've listened to this podcast much, you'll remember that I have some definite criticism of the self-help movement. Not that I don't believe in personal growth and self-ownership, but most of the programming in the world leads us to believe that self-help is the only solution on the table. We live in a world that's been programmed to believe that the path to success involves pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. And that's partly true. But when it's the only story out there, a half-truth can be a lie. You know, listen to any great success story, and if the right questions are asked, you'll quickly learn that there, there was this whole group of people who helped that person succeed. See, the self-help culture wants us to believe that doing something completely on our own is the more noble cause. And that's just not true. So our, programming deeply, so our programming deeply influences this question of how we feel about relying on others. And we need to question that programming. Now, the journal prompt for this second point involves a week-long assignment. I want you to get a small journal. It can be one of those little spiral-bound thingies that they sell in most grocery stores and drugstores. And then just keep track of the programming messages you hear during the week. What ideas are they selling? And are those ideas consistent with the conversations you're trying to design for yourself and with the conversations you're trying to design with others about how we live interdependently, how we help each other succeed? And then finally, there's our third P, our third area of concern related to our self-talk, and that's the question of our personalities and how they shape the way we talk about ourselves. Now, I chose the word personality, although truthfully, a better word for what I'm describing may be predisposition. Because here's what I keep learning. There's just certain things that are 
baked into us. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to ignite any weird, you know, nature versus nurture controversy. As a sociologist, I do think nurture plays a really big role in what we believe, what we want to change about the world, and frankly, how we talk about ourselves. But it also seems to be true that there are just certain things to which we are predisposed. Now, we talked about some of this over the last two weeks in terms of some of the junk that we inherit. You know, there certainly seems to be predispositions towards certain behaviors. I know this as a person in long-term recovery that, for example, substance abuse runs in my family. There seems to be something really in the, in the epigenetics. But what I'm actually referring to here are more about personality differences. So one of the things that's really captured our culture, especially over the last 40 or 50 years, has been all these different personality typing tests. So think about Myers-Briggs or Strength Finder. The one I spend a lot of time with is a sort of spiritual Myers-Briggs. It's called the Enneagram. And I'm an Enneagram 7. And because of that, there does seem to be certain things I'm predisposed toward. There are certain things that my personality makes me frankly, find more interesting than others. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this third point, and this episode is longer than, than my normal episodes, but you know, our, our past and our programming are more influential in our self-talk, but being an Enneagram 7 also seems to affect what I believe, and especially what I believe is going to be fun. <laughs> that seems to almost have been baked into me. So when, like when I talk to myself about what I believe, frankly, if there's a party involved, yeah, you know, I might be more likely to believe that thing. I tend to be fairly optimistic, even with some hardship in my life that doesn't seem to have changed the way I interpret new data. Now, I realize optimism is a skill, it's a viewpoint, it's a tool that we learn to develop. But I tend to be excited about new data, and I always have. I'm an Enneagram 7. On the Myers-Briggs, I'm an N or an intuitive. I love data. I love new ideas. I love looking at all the possible ideas and theories out there and how they might interrelate. Now, that's been shaped my, by my experience, but it seems to also be true that it was just kind of baked into my personality, into my predisposition. So in the same way, what I value tends to be shaped, frankly, toward anywhere there's going to be something exciting. A good party, good food. You know, what I value is, where's the good party going to be? Sometimes the Enneagram 7 is called the enthusiast. You know, I love good things. I, um, I cook a lot of really normal meals, but the reality is that when I get into a kitchen, the first thing I think is, okay, how can I make this meal memorable? How can I crank it up to 11? See, my predisposition, my personality, it tends to shape what I value and what I think needs to be changed in the world and myself. Now, there are three types in the Enneagram. There's the head type, the heart type, and the gut type. And the Enneagram 7 is a head type. So 
when I am having a conversation with myself about what needs to be changed in the world, I tend to think first, okay, how can I get people to think different? Now, my life partner, my wife, who's an Enneagram 2, she starts with the question, how can I serve people? Right? So what we, what we think needs to be changed in the world, what we think needs to be changed in ourselves, it's very much influenced by our personality. And it's also true that our personality plays a key role in this question of interdependence, how we feel about relying on others. Enneagram 8s, Enneagram 9s, Enneagram 1s, for example, they don't like relying on other people. And so this idea of predisposition may be the least important of the three Ps, but it's also critical that when we're asking how we talk to ourselves, how we talk uh, to ourselves about ourselves, that we realize that in addition to our past, both our trauma and our good events, and in addition to our programming, there's this X factor, kind of nature thing that seems to be born into us. And the prompt for this third point is straightforward. I want you to pick a personality profiling system and just test it out. The three that I recommend are Enneagram, Myers-Briggs, and Strength Finder. You can find free versions of all three on the internet. And when you read about yourself from that profiling system, these are not perfect, but they're not, hor- they're not horoscopes either. They're, there's something that just generally tends to be true. It's not predictive, but it does, there does seem to be some correlation with these personality types. And when you read about yourself, ask yourself the question, how does that influence the way I talk to myself? All right, folks, that's a wrap for today. Please follow me on social. You can find me at Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at the Will Sampson. And you can hit the subscribe button below to be notified of the latest episode. Thanks, everyone. And I'm going to see you next time on the Revolution of Interdependence podcast.